This is episode number 291, The Mindfulness of Cycling with Olympian Haley Smith. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. I think as cyclists, particularly with so much data available to us through our power meters and our heart rate monitors and time segments, etc., we forget about the things that are not measurable. I believe those things are more important. I think my best results have been because of my brain and my heart and the X factor that I had on the day that you just can't put your finger on. I think in terms of physicality, I've always been pretty close to my best. So why would I waste all this energy and time comparing and analyzing and putting so much weight on just the power numbers? Because there's, like I said, there's just so many different factors. And one aspect of being better every day is being in the driver's seat for your own health. There are a number of ways to do that, but I wanted to tell you about Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is an incredible research-backed company that uses innovative scientific blood work and an algorithm that goes with it to recommend lifestyle changes so that you can feel your best. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise by analyzing your blood, your DNA, your lifestyle, and your nutrition habits to help you look, age, and perform better. I've been using Inside Tracker since 2017 to look at over 40 biomarkers, things like hormones, things like vitamin levels, things like cholesterol, iron, red blood cell count, all different types of things that have reference ranges that are customized to you so that you are getting the information that works to you as an individual instead of a general recommendation that could be for anybody. We make over 200 food-based decisions a day, and that's why there are over 8,000 scientifically studied foods in Inside Tracker's algorithm so that you can optimize any of these biomarkers that might be off. So if you want to give this a try, whether to get an update on where you're at or to get a baseline, go to InsideTracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off all tests. They do DNA testing, blood testing, and also inner age. It's so important to take responsibility for your health. Inside Tracker is one great way to do that. Go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off and let me know what you think. So I'm really excited about today's guest, Haley Smith. Cycling has been a lifeline for her and she is a top professional cyclist and mountain biker. She's competed in the cross country event at the 2018 Commonwealth Games, winning a bronze medal. She has competed in the Olympic Games in 2021 and she recently signed with a brand new team, the Maxis Factory Racing Team, after a decade with Norco. But cycling has been more than just competition and riding a bike to Haley. It's been a tool to manage her mental health, what she regularly speaks out about. In this podcast, we talk about her path to cycling, battling anxiety, mindfulness, journaling, the tips and tricks that she uses to stay grounded and to find meaning and purpose in what she does, expanding views of success, and so much more. We talked a lot about measuring improvement and on outlook and attitude. And you can imagine how this might come into play if you are racing the World Cup circuit, if you are trying to go to the Olympics or have gone to the Olympics, there is an all-encompassing piece of the mental aspect. And living with anxiety and her story there is something that really ties into all of these elements. I personally am inspired by Haley Smith, and I was really excited to get to sit down and talk with her. 
If you like topics like what performance means to you, how to set goals, how to stay grounded whenever you are striving for something, make sure you're subscribed to my free weekly newsletter that comes out every Monday at sanyaluni.com slash newsletter, where I write an article that I spend a lot of time researching. In fact, I spend as much time researching for one of those newsletters as I do for recording a solo podcast episode. So there's a lot that goes into it so that I can bring you all of the best information in that newsletter for free. So go to sanyaluni.com slash newsletter. I would love to see you there. I'd love to be able to connect with you. And I'm also interested to hear what you want to learn about. So if there is a topic you want me to cover, feel free to reach out and let me know. So without further delay, let's get into this great episode with Haley Smith. Haley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so fun to get to actually chat because I I actually don't know if we've spent any time together in person, but I feel like I know you probably just from social media and similar friends, but yeah. Yeah, it's the same for me. I I don't think we've ever met in person, but I've followed you for a while. And I think Catherine Pendrell first, maybe I I found your social media through her. But yeah, so it's nice to meet you over Zoom. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully we can ride together um, if you come to Squamish sometime. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So where are you currently? Cause I know you're on like a mega road trip. Yeah. I'm currently in Santa Cruz. Um, I was living in Victoria throughout the pandemic and then we let our lease go at the end of January and we're kind of on a road trip, eventually making our way back East, but in Santa Cruz right now. Okay. So you're, you're planning to move like Eastern Canada. Is that right? Yeah. My, my family's from North of Toronto and then my husband his family is from Halifax. So we're, our plan is to go back East to be closer to family. Yeah. You got married recently. Yes, we did. We were supposed to be married in the summer of 2020 and then our wedding had all, yeah, it was planned. Everything was done. And then uh, we had to cancel it because of COVID, but we ended up getting married anyways. And we just did it in sort of three small separate ceremonies in order to celebrate with our families. So we have three wedding anniversaries. <laughs> wow. So which yes. one are you going to celebrate as your main wedding anniversary? Probably the first one when we went to City Hall, just the two of us and my siblings as witnesses, and mm-hmm. that'll be our our real wedding anniversary. Oh, congrats. It's so fun. Thanks. And congrats to you too. I, I know you're I, you're expecting again shortly. Yeah, actually, when this podcast comes out, I don't know if the baby will be born yet, but the due date is March 18th. This is coming out March 17th. So there may or may not be a baby by then. <laughs> well, that's exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. So how did you get into cycling? I This is a hard question for me to answer because I have kind of two start dates with cycling in, in my history. And I, well, I grew up riding a bike. I lived in a rural area and we rode our bikes everywhere on the, on the road and in the woods behind the house and stuff. And then when I was in the eighth grade, I started to ride a little bit with my dad and my brother. And it, that started with just kind of like the local Thursday night series. And then I, I got really sick with a, a mental health condition and I had to stop all endurance-based sports, but specifically cycling. And then I didn't really pick it up again until the second half of high school. And then when I went to university, I, I became sort of serious about it. And that's when I started to train and pursue it. Yeah. Are you comfortable talking about your mental health that you had in high school? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm really open about it. Growing up, I was always a very anxious child and my parents will corroborate that. But I think my issues with anxiety first started to manifest when I was like eight or nine years old. And I, I developed some, some insomnia symptoms and some social anxiety. And 
there, I now understand the root cause of it, but at the time I didn't. And it, it kind of went undiagnosed and untreated. And then when I went to high school in grade nine, the anxiety got really bad and it started to manifest itself in food, which is really common with eating disorders. They often have an anxiety basis. And so for me in the, throughout my grade nine year, I, I had a really, really fast descent into illness. And I ended up with, I was diagnosed at the time with anorexia uh, nervosa, but since it's been suggested that that was a misdiagnosis and I actually had orthorexia, which is, wasn't a defined disorder at the time, but has since been added to the list of uh, recognized mental illness conditions. And orthorexia is essentially like a, an obsession with healthification, uh, with being healthy. And for me, that was just, it, it, it wasn't healthy. <laughs> it, it isn't a healthy disorder, but yeah, I just, I got very sick and there's lots of mental things that go with that. And also lots of physical things. And I ended up uh, at the end of grade nine, I had to, I was admitted to the hospital and I spent a couple months on bed rest there because my body was so stressed and under and uh, ill, I guess. And yeah, it's just, it's been something that I've lived with since I was 14. So mm -hmm. it's an ongoing management process. Yeah. Yeah. What's the, like the, the treatment look like for that and like the strategies for working on that type of anxiety? In my case, because I was a pediatric patient, the strategies that the doctors use are very like aggressive and I didn't have a ton of control over them because I was under the age of 18. And so there was lots of mandated therapy and man, well, psychotherapy and mandated meetings with dietitians and, and different health professionals. And that did help. Obviously it kept me alive and it prevented me from, well, that intervention saved my life. But once you're released from the hospital, you do have to do a lot of the work yourself and you can support yourself with mental health professionals, which I was lucky to be able to do. But a lot of it is like work that has to be done personally. And for me, I found strategies through my sports psychologist and the clinical psychologist that I worked with when I was a teenager, but mostly they're around, they're, they're centered on mindfulness. And for me, that sometimes is meditation, but most of my mindful activity is actually in cycling um, or I, I accomplish it through cycling. And that's why I fell into to biking and why I love cycling so much. But then there are other things as well. Like I can't manipulate my diet at all because that's an obsessive risk for me, but I limit caffeine intake and I don't drink because those things exacerbate my physiological level of anxiety. So there's lots of different, different ways you can look after it. But for me, it's primarily training, working on a path of mastery, which gives me a sense of purpose and keeps me grounded. And then a few things like that, like I suggested that, you know, minimizing caffeine and alcohol and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it sounds like you've done a lot of personal work and you know what you need. And although it's not something that's ever going to just poof magically disappear, like you have great management strategies and you also have a lot of courage to talk about it. Cause I think a lot of people have had you know, certain mental health disorders in their past and they're just too, they're not comfortable talking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I hope that's changing. I think my philosophy has always been that the, the only reason you wouldn't talk about it is if you're ashamed and there's no reason to be ashamed because like mm -hmm. you said, everyone to some degree has 
some level of mental hiccups, whether it's mm-hmm. a diagnosed mental illness or if it's like the equivalent of a cold in their mm-hmm. their mental state. Yeah, so I, I think there's there's just no difference between having an eating disorder and having like a well, there is a difference, but but like arthritic knees, it's just it's something that you have and you work through it and you mm-hmm. figure out how to to function in your daily life and yeah. So how does, uh, you said you mainly practice your mindfulness through cycling. Like, what does that look like for you? I think cycling has a huge potential to be a meditative activity because it is something it's repetitive. You do it for long periods of time and you don't really have a choice, but to be with yourself, you can distract yourself with music or, you know, riding with other people all the time. But if you want to be a cyclist, you have to get comfortable being alone with your brain. And the only way to be comfortable with being alone in your brain and enjoy it is if you can be aware of the thought stream and you can recognize or have an enjoyable thought stream, I guess, if that makes sense. Because I guess you tune in through cycling, you really do t- tune into the the flavor of your thoughts and the habitual thought patterns because they're your your closest company. So for me, it's just that I'm out there for long periods of time and just like in meditation, when you can tune into your breath in, in cycling, you turn into the rhythm of, you know, the, your, your cadence, your tires on the road or on the trail and being present with the, the nature as you pass through it. And it just really draws you into the here and now. And then specifically with mountain biking, if you mindfulness is really about presence. And if you're not present in mountain biking, you're going to be on the ground very quickly. So I really like that aspect of it, that it's, it's a, it's an activity that forces present moment engagement. And that's really what mindfulness is attempting to do. Yeah. And then can you connect that to how that helps with anxiety? Well, there's a lot of different ways. I think it, it helps program your brain in a different way. It helps program you to let things pass instead of jumping right into them and becoming lost in storyline. For me, I I kind of think of anxiety as having a thought component and then a physiological component. So sometimes I'll have anxiety episodes that are thought-based, like worry-based, and sometimes I'll have them that are inexplicable and they're physiological. So I'll just, I'll wake up with a racing heart and sweaty palms and no idea why I wasn't thinking about anything. I wasn't even aware of dreaming. It just was happening to me physically. And cycling really helps with that too. I think it helps regulate your stress hormones and those waves that you go through with all the stuff that's happening in your body, any kind of fitness activity will help with that. But yeah, so I think, I think cycling helps me there on the physical aspect of it. And then also just, like I said, doing an activity that forces presence, it doesn't provide additional mental space to worry and ruminate and latch onto things. Like if you're, if you're mountain biking specifically for me, which is my my choice of uh, active mindful activity, you just, there's no room to be anxious. Like I said, if you start thinking about, I don't know, if you get lost in anxious thoughts, then you will be unsuccessful in navigating the trail. So it just helps, I think in the moment to like, you can ride yourself out of anxiety, I think in a, in an acute sense, but I also think it creates mental habits that help you deal with anxiety in a chronic sense. Yeah. And then I don't know if you have this experience or not, but sometimes myself and I know others will experience anxiety around cycling. Like it could be anxiety around crashing on the trail because you're recovering from an injury or you have a race coming up and maybe you don't feel good on the bike or you're not hitting the numbers you're supposed to hit or like all the different 
ways that, you know, having expectations around performance can cause anxiety. Have you had a grapple with that? Cause cycling is something you you're using to help with anxiety, but then it could also cause anxiety. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I definitely have. I think anyone who races would be lying if they said they hadn't dealt with some type of performance (laughs) anxiety or I think, yeah. So performance anxiety or for an example I often use is anxiety about a scary feature because whether or not you race, you can identify with that if you, if you ride and so I'll lose, if there's this big jump that I want to hit, I will lose sleep over it and wondering if I'll be able to get over it and how will I get over it? And will I crash? And I get lost in the fear a little bit. And I think that's where you have to, I think it's important to also have some type of mindfulness practice outside of cycling that can support you in these circumstances. So for me, for the last 10 years, I've been working with my sports psych to develop a, both a formal and an informal kind of meditation practice. And some people think that misunderstand meditation as relaxation, but really meditation is about tuning in and and focusing and becoming present and learning to be aware of the thought stream. And so I have to use those skills in order to work through the fear or the anxiety in these moments. And I'm not always successful, but I think having had, having this practice, this off the bike practice, it makes those moments manageable. And while I might not always overcome them in the moment, I might not always be able to throw myself off the jump. I haven't quit cycling. So it's working on some level because it's keeping me coming back and attempting to work through consecutive challenges. So you're right. I think performance anxiety is, it's funny that something that I, like you said, I use to be almost medication can also (laughs) create a need for medication. But I think that it's important not to avoid difficult things. And part of the reason why I like bike racing is because it forces me to confront these aspects of myself that are weaknesses. And yeah, I think, I think it's painful growth through those moments, but it's really valuable growth that will hopefully support me through post-cycling endeavors when whatever career comes next. Yeah. I think that's really relatable. And like, I'm a huge proponent of having some sort of mindfulness and or meditation practice in your life. And you're right. Like it isn't just about like going out and having just one way of addressing whatever you're working on, but like having a physical and a mental practice is something that can be hugely beneficial for a wide spectrum of whatever it is that you're working on. Mm -hmm. And sitting in a mindfulness practice for 10 minutes a day might not always feel right to you. You might go through periods of your life where it's just not working. And part of it is being able to recognize that and not forcing it and then having a different avenue that you can go through. So sometimes it'll it will just be the first 10 minutes of my bike ride or the last 10 minutes of my bike ride or a walk. But yeah, I think, I think versatility there and adaptability is pretty important. So you mentioned you found cycling again in uh, college. Like how did you get back into it after this treatment period that you went through? Yeah. So I grew up primarily dancing and playing hockey. Those were my main two pursuits until I went to university, but I did, I tried all sorts of sports. And one of the sports I was sampling in in the second half of high school was mountain biking. And we were really lucky that we had a, like a local regional race series. We had four races in the spring that were put on by the, like the teachers in the school board. So that's kind of how I refound it. I found it through school racing and I never rode on the road at first. I, I didn't even own a road bike until maybe five or six years ago. So 
it was all trail riding. And where I grew up in Uxbridge, my parents' house is seven kilometers from like the biggest trailhead north of Toronto. So I had access to endless amounts of, of trails. And my brother and my dad rode, as I said, and in high school, I just kind of, I found this race series and I found other kids that were into it. And up until that point, I didn't know that other kids mountain bikes. So that was a really positive thing that drew me in. But yeah, I just kind of, I started just doing it for fun as another thing that I could try. I was trying everything at that point and I kind of liked it. I mostly didn't because I was crashing all the time, but for some reason I was kind of hooked on the really steep development curve, I guess, because improvements come so quickly when you first start. And yeah, I just, I just kind of fell into it. And then when I went to university, it's really easy to rip out on a bike ride by yourself and not have to worry about, do I have a car to get to the arena and where would I store my hockey gear? And do I have to sign up for a team in this new city that I've, that I don't know how to navigate. And so it just kind of became like a natural thing to do when I went to university. Yeah. So then, I mean, so you found it and you were racing in university, but now like when you look back, it's like, you're an Olympian, you've had podium at world cups, like you're, you've, you've had an incredible career so far and you still have a lot in front of you. So how did you make that big jump, you know, from I'm going to race my bike to I'm going to really go for this as a career? I don't think I ever made that like mental jump. And I think that's part of why I've been lucky enough to have the success I've had is because I didn't, I didn't set out with this massive goal of going to the Olympics. If you had told 18 year old me that that's what I was doing, that's what you're working towards for the next 10 years, I would have probably collapsed from the pressure. I would have been in disbelief. I just would not have believed you that that was even something in the realm of possibility for me. So it was really incremental. And I think that allowed me to appreciate the tiny successes throughout the whole time. And that motivated me to seek the next challenge. So for example, like making my first world championships team, I got that email and I was like, wait a minute, there are world championships and I get to go to them. Like that was a huge, huge thing. And if I think if I had had really big lofty goals, I wouldn't have appreciated that so much because I appreciated that as an kind of as an, as an end, not as a means to get to some tenure in the future end. And so I just continued along with like very, very small steps. It would be like 45th at a world cup. And then the next year it would be 30th and then it would be 20th and then it was 15th. And yeah, I just, I think the key for me was that it was, I wasn't expecting anything more than what was happening and nothing more than the really small daily improvements. And any sticky periods I've had in my career where I've either plateaued or underperformed, it's underperformed. It's been when I've started to forget about the magic of just that I get to do this and gotten focused on what's in the future or expecting myself to achieve some sort of lofty goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super interesting, but it also makes so much sense. Like for some people, like you always hear like dream big and all this stuff, but for some people that, that just feels like too much. It's too overwhelming. And like you said, you start putting this immense amount of pressure and I've seen some really awesome cyclists and they get into the sport, but they have that pressure on themselves. And then they, they quit after two years because chances are, you're not going to achieve that goal in two years. Like it's going to take a really long time to get there. And the small incremental progress that we make over time, like that's what really builds confidence. And that's like, you, you really have, you touched multiple times on like the meaning and purpose behind why you do what you do. And if you start focusing on outcomes or this, like 
thing that could happen someday in the future, like that might undermine motivation and take away from that meaning and purpose. Exactly. Yeah. I think, well, you just hit the nail on the head with everything there. And I think for me, the last sort of six months has, has had to be a return to why I do this. And the answer I've come up with is just that I like improving. I like adventuring and I like challenging myself and results don't factor into that equation. Sure. They're great, but those things are what motivate me and have ensured long-term motivation. So that's kind of the last year has been a lesson in returning to that. Yeah. And you you mentioned multiple times, like you like improving and you said initially when you got into cycling, there's kind of a steep curve. So you saw improvement really quickly, but as many of us know, when you've been doing it a long time, it's really hard to see improvements that are like easily measurable. So like, how do you measure your improvement and, and keep that as part of your motivating factor? That's been challenging recently because I think I'm getting to a point where the jumps aren't as big and the improvements aren't as big. So I've had to expand what I view as a success. And when I first started, it it was like really easy to measure improvement with my power meter or with trail descending times. Like we use Strava to, to time our trail descents. And that's not as often the case anymore. But so I've, I've looked recently at things like repeatability. So sure, I can do a one-off and I've always been able to do a one-off at this certain amount of wattage, but can I do that seven times now? And I think that's been a really important part of the equation for me is looking at repeatability as a metric of success. But also for me, it's been really important to not be comparing myself to my best all the time. And that's easy to do when you're improving all the time. You can always compare yourself to to your best because you're going to keep improving. But I know what my best is, right? Or what I know sort of what I'm capable of as my best. And I don't need to be there all the time. And it's harmful to expect yourself to be there all the time. So I think in measuring improvement, you have to look at just where you are right now, where you are right now, where you were yesterday. And you can't really look any further back than that. Or at least that's what I'm learning. Also, because you're, I think I've had to accept that you are never going to be the exact same person you were two weeks ago. You just, you are always learning and growing and changing. And so comparing yourself to a version of yourself from five years ago is just irrelevant because you're not that person anymore. So that perspective as well, I think has helped me change how I measure success. Yeah. I could go on so many tangents about how you measure improvement and success. And we could probably do a talk on each, each of these tangents, but in a nutshell, I think it's just, you know, starting where you are and then comparing yourself to now, if you compare yourself at all. Yeah. I think there's so much wisdom in that because a lot of times you hear, well, don't compare yourself to other people, compare yourself to yourself. And I've, I've experienced this too. It's like, well, sometimes you're not going to be on an upward trajectory. Like there's going to be peaks and valleys in your, uh, your improvement curve, I guess, if you want to call it that. And like you said, if you're like comparing yourself to your best all the time, like your inputs might be different, like you might be different. And if that's your expectation, like it's going to be really hard to manage that and to feel good about what you're doing mm-hmm. and being able to compare yourself to like where you are now, not at your top, top, top. It's hard to do that, but it's also really powerful to do that. Yeah, it gives you a lot of power. And I think when you're when you're comparing yourself to the best or your perceived best version of yourself, which is also another <laughs> rabbit hole because we don't have 
perfect clarity on how we view our past selves. But when you do that, you're essentially comparing yourself to a different person. You're comparing yourself to someone else. So I, I just don't think that's sustainable. It works when you're very new, but it doesn't work when you're trying to sustain a 10, 15, 20 year career. You have to probably drop comparison completely and just and look at the the elements of your your practice that you can the technical elements and the you just have to expand what you look at and you have to get you have to avoid getting trapped in the what can i measure because there's i mean we can only probably measure five or six parts of the performance equation but there's a million yeah and you you said like oh i could go on lots of tangents like let's let's go there like what are some other ways you like <laughs> well there's just so many things like how could you measure outlook? How can you measure attitude? I, I mean, you, you psychologists probably can, but I think as cyclists, particularly with so much data available to us through our power meters and our heart rate monitors and time segments, et cetera, we forget about the things that are not measurable. And I, I believe those things are more important. I think my best results have been because of my brain and my heart and my the X factor that I had on the day that you just can't put your finger on. And I think that in terms of physicality, I've always been pretty close to my best. So why, why would I waste all this energy and time comparing and analyzing and putting so much weight on just the power, power numbers? Because like I said, there's just so many different factors. I mentioned the mental performance ones, but things like the timing of your nutrition can have a huge impact. And are you doing that well? And are you engaging with the people in your life positively so that you get on your bike with a positive attitude? And I mean, you could probably throw some out too. There's just, there are literally like thousands of little elements that we could work on to improve. And I get sort of frustrated by just the focus and my own focus on Watts alone. So I, it almost tongue ties me because I, I get angry about it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The metrics of high performance are almost in, infinite and it's easy to get so focused on a number. Like people could look at, you know, there's like how much they slept and now there's like a, tons of different ways to measure your sleep or like your strain score or your, your TSS or your, like your FTP. Like there's just like a million ways to measure it. But if you don't have a strong foundation to, to start from, like you mentioned outlook and attitude as two potential foundational elements, like that stuff might not even matter. And you need to have a good relationship with yourself so that you can have a good relationship with all of these things that are coming at you and all of these variables that you might be trying to control. Yeah. And, and I think, I kind of think that things we can measure distract us from what's actually important. And I think there, you can almost use them as ways to berate yourself or to, they're almost crutches. They're ways of looking at performance or the potential for performance in a smaller way. It helps us, it helps us break down performance into manageable, measurable metrics. And that's just not what performance is in, in any field beyond like cycling included. And so I think you have to leave room for creativity in interpreting how performance comes out. And I think just, yeah, just sometimes the data distracts you from that. One example is my coach, <laughs> if we go to do, he's done this a couple times, but we'll go to do an interval workout on the trails. 
and will be congregated around him waiting for the pre-workout guidelines in his sort of speech. And I vividly remember him saying, all right, take your gloves off, reach down, grab some of the dirt. This is your first job every day. Just touch the dirt. What is it telling you? How does it feel? How is it telling you you need to ride today? And it sounds maybe like silly or I don't know, just a little bit too, (laughs) too, too out there. But that's the first part of performance on that day is tuning into the tuning into nature, turning it, tuning into the texture of the dirt and how your tires are going to feel on it. And you can't measure that. But if we're doing a downhill section, like a downhill time section, that's way more important than what my power meter is telling me. And we just forget about that kind of stuff. I think we get too focused on the numbers. Yeah. And then we also use the numbers as like a measurement of like worth. Like I, I I've gotten caught up mm. on Strava with this, like, Oh, the number of hours, like it's, I have to like do another 10 minutes so I can round out the number of hours or I'm not doing enough hours. Therefore I'm not going to be good enough. Or, you know, I'm not, I'm not hitting this certain number, but then I've still had great performances, even if those quote numbers or those outcomes that I'm trying to like look for validation aren't showing that. So yeah, it's, it's just super interesting. Yeah. The, I think the fact that we can measure stuff has created the false impression that more is better, more hours, like you said, higher numbers, more intervals, but that's, that's harmful and it's not true. And are you working just to work? Are you working to, so that you only perform during training or are you working smart and working to address all areas of yourself so that you can perform on race day? And I like using Elliot Kipchoge as an example, the marathon runner and his, his quote, well, I don't know his exact quote, but just saying that he doesn't go past 80 or 90% in training. He saves that for, he saves that for race day. I mean, I use Strava a lot, but if you're a Strava hero, chances are you're putting too much energy into the competition of training and training shouldn't always be a competition Yeah, with, I love with that. yourself or with other people. Yeah. I love that. I think a lot of people will go too hard in training just because it's something that someone else can see online. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you do to work on your outlook and attitude? This is an ongoing, I feel like a novice in this area and I will probably always feel like a novice in this area, but I do a lot of journaling. I'm currently working through a a book. Actually, I'm I'm a guest with friends here in Santa Cruz and I'm working through a a kind of mindfulness and self-reflection book that the woman here gifted me. So I do a lot of things like that. My journal is probably my biggest asset and I have a few different kinds of them. So I I have like a, I call it my word vomit journal. And it's just when I need to write stuff down, when I just have to get things out and I just have to have a space to be really honest with myself. Um, And then I have a confidence journal, which is more like a, a, it's a, this small little book and it's a bullet journal. And I, have to deliberately write down my successes from the day or from the training week or whatever. And the attempt with that is to train my brain to see the positive things because there's positive, positive things all around. And it's really just how you, what your outlook is that determines whether or not they impact you. So my confidence journal is a really big one. And that's something I've done for the last, I don't know, like 10 years. And it's been really, really helpful. And then beyond that, I try to just have a mindfulness practice that allows me to be aware and honest with my internal dialogue. Yeah. I love the confidence journal piece, especially that that's something that I've had to work on as well. And I like released this online mental performance course a couple of years ago. 
And there's actually like a page that is like, what is my daily win? Because it's so easy to look at all the things that aren't going well. And then you just don't even celebrate your successes or like people feel silly celebrating like a small success. But those are the things that are the building blocks to like our achievements. And it's, mm-hmm. you don't just all of a sudden do well at something. It's, it's, it's like you said, this incremental progress. And that's, that's how you've gotten to where you're at in your career. And it sounds like that's still something every day that you are revisiting. Yeah. And I think one of the lessons that I've taken from cycling is if you don't celebrate your little successes, then you're, you're doing it wrong because if you don't learn to celebrate the little ones, then you honestly don't even really celebrate the big ones. Cause who decides what's big and what's little, like I didn't, when I got my, my first podium at Nova Mesto, I didn't really celebrate that because I was so used to just chasing the next win and thinking that the previous win was only, it was insignificant. It didn't matter. It's just to get me to here and it's draining. It makes you, it's, it robs you of the joy in the process. And that's, I know it sounds maybe cliche, but the process is where the joy is found. The big, huge winning moments are so fleeting and they're few and far between. And so I think training yourself to see success is really important because that will shape your whole experience. How do you celebrate the bigger successes? I'm still working on it. I'm not very good at that. I think I rely on the people around me to help me chill out and accept that, wow, this actually has happened. But I mean, in terms of practicality, like I love to spend time with my family and we'll often do family parties or dinners. It's so cheesy, but I love Disney World. So there's been a few times in in recent history where we celebrate at the end of the season by going to Disney World. But yeah, it's a weakness for me. I'm not very good at stopping and accepting success in a way. Yeah. And you're definitely not alone in that. I actually interviewed this really uh, interesting. She's a, she does like acceptance and commitments therapy and coaching. And we talked about strivers and how people that strive really have a difficult time accepting success and celebrating success because they're on to the next. And I'm, I'm no different. I really have a hard time, especially like celebrating the bigger successes. The daily wins are actually a bit easier to celebrate because I feel like you just you just write it down or you just think about it and it feels good and you get that kind of like rush. But then the bigger things you, you think, well, what am I, how am I supposed to celebrate in a big way? Like, what am I supposed to do? And what is this? Or it feels like contrived, like, well, now I'm making myself celebrate this thing, but yeah. So I, I don't, I don't have an answer for that either. <laughs> I think, well, you just kind of spark something in me and that another to reference Elliot Kipchoge again, he doesn't really celebrate the massive wins. He treats them as just another daily win, right? Like mm-hmm. another, yeah, just like another personal small achievement. And I think that's a, an interesting way to look at it. And I'm actually, I'm reading The Practice of Groundedness right now by, mm-hmm. Brad I think it's Brad Stolberg. Yep. And he's talking about what the part that I'm at, he's talking about ease versus excitement. And I kind of relate that to this example where in a in a state of ease, you it's it's, it's joy producing to just celebrate the small things and to be kind to yourself and, and appreciative of your little daily wins and the excitement part in terms of massive successes. It's just, it really is fleeting and it's a double-edged sword because sure you can celebrate hugely, but there's a massive come down from that too. And that's not to say that celebrating isn't important, but if you celebrate it along the way, then the big wins are really just like the feather in the hat after 
the culmination of all your daily wins. So I think sometimes it feels like I don't really need to celebrate because I've been just engaged the whole time. And it's, it's almost more like not a feeling of relief when these big wins happen, but a feeling of being able to exhale that the journey is, has reached its, its summit. And I know that I've heard that echoed in other athletes too. It's just, it, it can sometimes feel like relief and it's actually the process that's given them the reasons to celebrate along the way. Yeah. That's so well-defined. And yeah, I think that that really resonated with me when you were talking about that. And also that we might be putting too much pressure on ourselves to celebrate these huge wins. Like I got to celebrate this in a big way, but really it's the, it's the celebration on a daily basis of all the things that you've did in your process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, I've been working with mantras and in the last couple of weeks we've restarted or we've reintroduced like maximal work into our training program. So we've progressed through, you know, the threshold phase and we're into like full gas intervals, which I find really scary. And my mantra for the last one was just celebrate your fitness. You've spent, you know, the last five months cultivating a high level of fitness. This workout isn't a test. It's a celebration of what you can, what you can do today because of all the work you've done. And that was a breakthrough for me because it's the first time that I've actually been able to like celebrate a win as it was happening. And for Mm -hmm. me, that win was getting through like a really challenging workout and enjoying doing it. But that's just, I guess those mantras, they're another way that I've been trying to work on my outlook and approach, mental approach. Yeah. It's like super like growth mindset to be like, this is not a measurement or a validation of if I'm good or bad or fast or slow, like this is a celebration of my effort. And like, yeah, I've been trying to view races that way too. Instead of like, this isn't this like crazy event that I'm doing. This is a celebration of all the hard work that I've put in. And it's a privilege and a joy that I get to be here no matter what happens on the day, but it's, it's hard to actually, you know, have that work out every single time, but coming, coming in with that mindset has been something that's been helpful for me. Yeah. And and like you said, it's not going to work out all the time and you're not always (laughs) going to have a good mindset. Like (laughs) just like you're going to have bad physical days, you're probably going to have bad mental days too. And I think the skill there is just being able to let it go and not berate yourself for, berating yourself in the moment, like don't add to the fire, just being able to put it, put it down, put it, lay it down and walk away from that day and start a new one. And for people who are like, what's this groundedness book? Like people should definitely pick it up. And Brad was on the podcast a while ago talking about that book. So I'll put a link in the show notes for anybody who's interested in this book. Cause it's, it's definitely worth reading. Yeah. I've been reading it every morning with my breakfast and taking notes and I, I love it. Yeah. Really resonates with me. So we've talked about all of these different things, but ultimately, like, I'm sure you still have goals in mind. So how do you set goals with all, with this entire framework that we've built? I think you, you have to think about goals that inspire you and they should be a little bit scary, but I think you do need to set them. It's just that that can't be your daily focus because that doesn't big, huge goals that are kind of distant. They don't give you validation. They don't give you a sense of like, you're not going to get a sense of accomplishment on a daily basis. And that's really important for motivation. You have to feel like you're working towards something or improving in some way. And so like, I have big goals. I'd like to go back to the Olympics. I'd like to stand on a world championships podium. Like I have, I have lofty goals and I know they're right because when I close my eyes and think about them, I get butterflies, but 
you kind of have to set them and then forget them. And in the setting, you ideally have created a plan for the steps that you would take to get there. But your daily focus has to be on your daily goals and your more short-term ones and goals that allow you to experience success. I think that's really important. A framework of goal setting that sets you up for at least somewhat frequent success. There's a principle called desirable difficulty in sports psychology. And if your ultimate goal is outside of what you can achieve right now, if the difficulty of the task is too high for your current abilities, and there's no way to, um, and you haven't created a plan for how to get there, then you'll probably give up. So I do think that goal setting is still really important, but it has to be, I mean, we've, this has been really like a hot topic in recent years, but it has to be process focused and the process can still be super rewarding. It's not, I think it's, it's not as sexy as like these, the big lofty goals that are outcome focused, but they're, they're the rewarding ones. And those goals are actually what get you to the end. So yeah, maybe let's, yeah, process focused goals or like journey focused goals. And what do you want to achieve? What do you want to achieve? And what do you want to experience? on the way to those goals. And I think that's kind of where I'm focusing right now. Yeah. I like that you talked about how it feels to set a lofty goal, because you mentioned earlier that like, if it's too big, it actually feels crushing and too much pressure, but if it feels realistic, then you actually don't feel that constriction. You actually feel butterflies and you're excited. So that there's, Mm -hmm. that's, that's one way that you can tune into if this goal is like resonating or working with you instead Mm -hmm. of against you, I guess. Yeah. For me, one of my biggest like areas of goal setting on the bike in a more acute sense is with technical skill. And I'm very in tune with what obstacles or trail features are within my desirable difficulty and what are without, because if I close my eyes and I immediately start to sweat and feel like I'm under attack, then the obstacle is too big. (laughs) But if it's like, Oh, I probably could, but I don't know, then it's the right level of difficulty. So yeah, I think just everyone has that internal, it's not a compass, but kind of like internal barometer of what they're capable of, I think. And you just kind of need to learn to listen to it. Yeah. I think that's a really great way to describe if you should be attempting a technical feature or not, because I think people think, oh, do you just feel scared? And you just go down it. And that's not that simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some people like it, it works for, but I'm not like that. I'm a, I'm an incremental person and I, I don't, take unnecessary risks. Race brain sometimes does things that (laughs) the non-race Haley would think were unnecessary risks. But yeah, I think there's no, there's nothing wrong with pursuing your goals and pursuing improvement in a, in a safe way and in a way that feels safe and supportive to you. You don't have to, there's nothing to be gained for being excessively brave and just hucking yourself off something. If that's not your learning process, just that's self-defeating. So let's take everything that we painted and now talk about the Olympics, like the buildup to that, the goal setting around that, the expectations around that. Like what, what was that whole process like for you? It was, to be honest, I still don't have it sorted out. I don't know if I will ever be able to fully sort out my first Olympic experience because it was so prolonged. First of all, it was like two years from when the qualification period opened or even more than that until the games ended up finally happening. And that's a long time to build up pressure and personal expectation and to try to maintain 
the razor sharp level of mental focus you need to perform at your best. And yeah, so like, I don't think six months is enough time to distill those full two years and to feel like I've got a full handle on what it was and what it meant for me. I do think that like I, I underperformed at the games. I'll be very honest. I was disappointed with my performance, but I also now, I think I understand why. And I think a lot of it did have to do with pressure. And I hope that the next time around, well, I, I know that I, I've gone through that the next time around. I know how to, I know what the pitfalls are. I know how to better conceptualize pressure and better, better work through it. But that, I mean, it was a joy being at the Olympics was a true honor and it will be something that I cherish for the rest of my life. But I also have so much unfinished business that I also feel, I feel a sense of like determination, but also irritation with myself that it didn't go the way that I wanted it to go. Yeah. It's the Olympic experience is it's tough to distill. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I haven't been to the Olympics and I'm never going to the Olympics and I, most people listening also are in that camp. So it'd be hard to really like be able to describe that to someone like me or somebody else listening, but you mentioned like, yeah, the pressure that you put on yourself impacted your performance. And then the disappointment after that has been difficult, but also that disappointment can fuel the fire for the next one. For sure. And I think it's very rare for a first Olympic games or a first crack at like a massive goal in any field to go well, it's, it's really rare for that to happen. And so the important thing is, can you understand the lessons that it needed to teach you in order to, to have a better performance the next time the outcome might not be better but can you execute better the next time because of the lessons you learned? And I learned a lot of lessons. <laughs> so, so I think that I'm, I mean, I'm grateful for that experience. And I think it has, will prepare me to, if I'm lucky enough to get another go, I think it will prepare me to perform a lot better. And if, even if I don't get another chance at the Olympics, I think shooting, setting huge goals and falling short, teaches you a lot about yourself. And those are lessons too, that I'll carry forward into whatever endeavor I do. And so overall, I'm very grateful that I got to go, but at the same time, the Olympics aren't everything and they're, they're just another bike race. And really what was important and what taught me all these lessons was the thousands of days that I lived leading up to the Olympics. It wasn't July 28th. It was, you know, the previous decade. Yeah. It sounds like that perspective taking piece and thinking big picture in regards to the Olympics, but also just in regards to your life and that your life is going to go on past bike racing at some point, um, is something that's really helpful for you. Yeah. And I think it's important for like pressure is a theme for me. And I think like, for example, I have an undergraduate degree, but I'm actually going back to school part-time for, to pursue a master's degree. And for me, it's really important to have something else so that my whole livelihood is not riding on me riding my bike because that's that's pressure and to excel on the race course for me it has to be light free and i have to have the i need to have a sense of possibility and yeah just i can't be carrying my own world on my shoulders so some people that works for like the pressure like monetary motivation is helpful for them but that kind of stuff just doesn't work for me 
Now, this is a theme that I've heard coming up a lot recently. Like I heard Shalane Flanagan, the, the marathon runner, um, possibly the greatest female marathon runner of all time. She said something like that. Like I have to have multiple identities. I can't just be only a runner because that's way too much pressure and it's just, it's just too much. And then I was reading a parenting book um, and it was about like the pressure that kids put on themselves to make grades or to, you know, SAT scores or college and just how important it is to be focused on the whole person, not on this one element, even if this element is a really big, big part of your life, because it's too threatening to a sense of identity. Yeah, for sure. And if you perceive a, a threat to your identity, it makes you shy away and you're unable to give all of yourself because if you give all of yourself and that's all you define yourself by and you come up short, then what do you have left? And yeah, and that's actually something that I have been working on with my sports psych. Uh, my her name's Charlene, and she pushes me to define myself by a myriad of of titles and of things, and by what I like, and and not just about the fact that I pedal a bike in squiggly circles. <laughs> <laughs> So the last couple of minutes, like you've been riding, you were riding for Norco for a number of years and that sponsorship has changed. What does that sponsorship look like now? And how is that affecting your, like your visions of the future? Yeah. So I had 10 wonderful years with Norco and from this season on, I'll be racing for Max's factory racing and we'll be riding new bikes and pretty much new equipment across the board. And we'll be, I will, I say we, it's myself and my husband, but I'll be taking on additional racing opportunities and new, new challenges. And I'll still be racing world cups, but I get to do, I'm excited about the opportunity to expand what bike racing looks like for me. And so I'll be doing some gravel racing, some marathon racing, um, still, like I said, some world cups and UCI level racing, but the next two years are really going to be about self-exploration and about exploration of what is out there in cycling because it's really easy to get lost in the world cup olympic stream bubble but that's a really small segment of what cycling is and i've never gotten to really experience the other stuff and so i'm really looking forward to doing that and i think it'll help me grow as an athlete i mean my goal is still to go back to paris so that's there on the horizon but yeah just i'm really excited about the new team i've been riding we're riding ibis bikes this year and i've been playing around on that for the last week. And I'm just having, I'm having a blast. And I think longevity and loyalty is really important, but there are also periods of time in your career where it's important to change things up and to inject some new energy that way. And so far the energy injection has been really positive. Yeah. That, and from like, even a burnout perspective, like being able to do different things and grow in different ways and see improvement in different areas, like that's going to be so much fun. Yeah. And it changes also, like I felt, I think for the last few years, I felt that my only value lies in what I can do on a world cup course, but this, this team has given me a way to explore other ways that I can express myself on a bike and, and other ways to be engaged with the community and do these mass participation events. And I'm, I'm just, I'm really excited about it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think that there's a lot of wisdom and perspective that you've brought and I've learned a lot from you as well. Where can people follow you and connect with you? I mostly use Instagram. So my handle is Haley Hunter Smith. That's pretty much it. If you go on Instagram, you'll find me, you'll find my other channels as well. Great. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, Sonia. 
I hope you enjoyed that episode. Make sure that you check out Haley's Instagram so that you can follow what she's up to. That is Haley Hunter Smith on Instagram. Thank you so much for supporting the show, for sharing it with people that might find value in it, for rating and reviewing and subscribing the show on your own so that it can find others that way as well. And for those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon, that is a place where people are donating a couple bucks a month to the show. That is patreon.com slash the Sonia show. I've been doing this show for about five years, every single week. And I've put a lot of time and my own funds into this show. And it means so much to me that you guys are here. And to those of you who are also donating to the show, you can do that again at patreon.com slash the Sonia show. We'll see you right back here next week. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. 